Hey guys, here's something new we'd like to try. We'd like to learn a little bit more about our podcast listeners in order to have better conversations and just find out exactly what you're interested in listening to. And as a reward, we'll give you your own pair of boxes and lined socks, which are very soft and cozy, by the way. I wear them all the time. Just go to the website custom.sockclub.com slash IEX and fill out a very short survey and get your own pair of socks mailed straight to you while supplies last. And they're also free. Again, it's custom.sockclub.com slash IEX. Also, when you do get your lovely socks, tag us in your sock selfies on Twitter and Instagram at IEX. Thanks, guys, and thanks, as always, for listening. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Boxes and Lines. Welcome to Boxes and Lines. Here he goes again, over-talking me, John Ramsey. And today, we have a special guest, uh, Brian Christian from Old Mission. Brian, welcome. Very happy to have you on this podcast. Thanks for having me. Before we um, started the podcast, Brian and I were talking, interesting, the last time we met one another, it's, it's funny, we seem to run into each other on the commute and in other cities. We were on the same flight to Chicago about two weeks before everything shut down. And as we got off the plane, we didn't know if we should shake hands. So we did that awkward elbow thingy. And then we proceeded to take the subway system into downtown Chicago. We were there for two days and happened to be on the same flight, packed flight on the way home. So, Oh, that's I, great. So you did the elbow thing and then you went into a subway. Yeah, that's, that's, kind, of, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the joke I made about yeah. it. But we, we came out of it, thankfully, um, safe. And actually, one of the co-workers who'd been traveling with me had just recently, the week before, come back from Milan, where there had been a a massive outbreak of it, which I didn't quite know until we were out to dinner that night. So mm. anyway, Brian, good, good to see you. I see you're, you're at your home now, like all of us. Yeah, well, I, I miss those times commuting to Chicago. I didn't think I would uh, I'd actually be saying that, but uh, you know, it was a, uh, feels like ages ago, but I'm happy to be here. And yeah, I'm uh, working home and have been working home for you know, during the whole COVID. Well, you look crazy. healthy. You look ready and healthy. We can see you. <laughs> healthy. I think I'm calling it the COVID-15. I'm yeah. up to 10 pounds. I'm going to take another five yeah. and add it on there before we go back, John. Yeah, you look a little pale. Yeah. I thought that was the, because of the Zoom effect. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's a tummy boy. The TV puts on 15 pounds. <laughs> As I say that, I'm going to crack open a beer. It's not an IEX liquidity beer, but it's it's one. Wow, that sounds really good. Mm. It's one from the brewery who um, make it. It's called Die Todd Die. It's a Pilsner. I don't know what that means, but good word That's brewery are the brewery that make our name. beers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I couldn't go and grab one of my Miller Lights. People would make fun of the Irish guy for drinking a light beer on the podcast. Mm-hmm. So cheers, well, fellas. I, I, had, I had heard about this, this liquidity on this podcast, so I will open up my Blue Moon as well. Nice. Good, good man. That's the type of guest we like, John. It's opposed to me. I mean, oh, well, well I, I don't drink beer. That's my... I, well, I you, drink, you drink scotch. Yeah. which is great. Also, another interesting story, Brian and I met actually when Brian worked at uh, CBOE, a direct competitor of IEX's. He and I have always had sort of the opinion of while your competitors doesn't mean that you can't sort of try and bridge the industry a little bit. So funny enough, we met over pints in downtown New York. So mm-hmm. maybe there's a there's a correlation between travel and drinking for us too anyway, but there seems to be a theme there. Yeah. And it's it's, it's, it's yeah. a theme in my life. Um, <laughs> a lot of good pints, but a lot of good debates on panels as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We've been on panels. Jeez. So I thought what we do is we, we'd ask Brian first, you know, now that he's gone from the exchange side of the world to the market making side of the world, you know, what's that like, Brian? 
and what's like the evolving role of a market maker, and then we can kind of we can go from there. Yeah, no, I think it's a great question, and I and I, I feel really sort of lucky to be in an industry that's afforded me a lot of different opportunities to to gain perspective, right? And so, I spent you know twenty plus years sort of growing up in the electronic exchange side of the business. And that, that included a lot of changes in market structure and really kind of living the market structure changes that's happened over the last 20 years. And, and that, was a, that was a great experience and the evolution of our market, especially the U.S. equities and options, changed tremendously. This past year, I, I joined Old Mission, starting up a, a client-facing role here. And Old Mission is a, is a market maker. So I've, I've gone from the exchange side to now being a customer of the exchange. Do you know what the origin of the uh, old mission name? It sounds like a, a brand of salsa. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah actually, it's a Chicago-based firm. Uh, so there is an area in the lakes called the Old Mission Peninsula. Oh, interesting. Yep. Uh-huh. Cool. You'll, you'll find it funny when you hear our topics here today, but we do have quite a number of listeners who are not necessarily in the industry. So if you wouldn't mind a little bit of 101 backup, Brian, and just from your perspective, what would you define a market maker to be? Sure. I would think of, you know, if I would put it simply, a market maker is somebody who's going to be in the market pricing a security two-sided. So they're going to be a buyer and a seller in a displayed market. So they're, a market maker has an obligation, so a legal obligation from a compliance standpoint, to stand up and to make a two-sided market. So when people are selling, they're buying. And when people are buying, they're selling. Uh, basically, the market makers are integral. So a market maker can take a lot of different forms. People know the specialist, the specialist from the New York floor as a form of a market maker, where they're taking risk and really integral part of liquidity in our, in our marketplace. So that you have somebody there who's going to take risk and do a two-sided market. And uh, you guys are fully electronic market making operation, is that correct? We are, yes. Yeah. We're uh, kind of classify us as a quantitative market maker. Okay. Uh, we're really focused on the, the ETF space. Uh, so, you know, we, we look at this market and we specialize in ETFs. And really what that means is an ETF is an exchange traded product, which is a group of products put together. So Old Mission's a, a quantitative market maker specializing in ETFs. And so an ETF is an exchange traded product, which is a, a basket of securities. Um, grouped together and traded on exchange. And so we, we are, we're looking to take risk and facilitate those trades. So you've got, like I said, there's a lot of different types of market makers that are out there and how yeah. they look at the market. A lot of people ask us this question when we, when we pose questions to ask on the podcast. And generally we ask every guest, like, how is life as a market maker in this COVID world? And I, like I explain it, you know, from us as an exchange and a fully electronic exchange and you're a quantitative market maker, it's relatively easy for us to be out of the office. Everything runs, you know, remotely in data centers in New Jersey. But uh, was the additional volatility, was it tricky on the operations? And, and how have you fared through all of this? Yeah, so, you know, being a market maker can be electronic, uh, fully electronic, but we also have people on the floor of the SIBO uh, that are trading. And so, you know, that, that evolved. SIBO converted their floor operation to be all electronic. So like any business, you have to pivot, right? You have to adapt to that and you have to change your technology to, or to support that. So, you know, it, with these markets, especially in March, you know, the volatility was out there. You need to 
you need to act in a way that is that is prudent. And we had a lot of people who were in the office and people who were working from home. So it was an environment that we had to adapt to quickly while also understanding that our obligations in the marketplace is to provide liquidity. You know, in, in, in fast markets or volatile markets, market makers, you know, as they stand up and they provide liquidity in these markets, especially when that volatility moves liquidity into the exchanges. So, I mean, everybody saw the volume and that uh, volatility in those markets. So we were there every day figuring it out. You know, every day it was a new challenge. I wouldn't say it was easy to make that transition, but we did it and we did it effectively. And then my next question for you, because you guys are global. And, you know, I, I remarked, I, I had a, my cousins, a lot of them live in Ireland and Australia, and like I'm obviously over here, and we did a Zoom call about a month ago, and we were all on a Zoom call all over the world in the same situation in quarantine. So has it been a similar experience for Old Mission globally as it is in the U.S. in terms of, I assume, everyone's quarantined there as well? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you have got, you, you're quarantined and you're also trying to trade globally, right? So you think about how this pandemic has hit all these different markets, right? And every market is different. So again, you need to adapt to those markets. And when you're trading complex products like an ETF, that has underlying securities in, a, in Asia, in Europe, you need to be able to adapt to that and figure out a way to make sure you can get that liquidity. And you know, as you said before, a lot of the brokers that provide that access are adapting as well. So you know, being creative in how you find those solutions and continue to do your business is good. The nice thing about a firm our size is we do more with less. So your ability to be to pivot and your ability to get creative solutions is a little easier to move because you have the you have traders who are also coding who are trading and you can understand the full picture. So you've been dealing with this this these current conditions for some period of time now and they've obviously posed a lot of challenges for all of us but I would imagine that a lot of the folks that work for you and other traders don't have all of the same technology and the screens and all the access to the same suite of information that they would have if they were in the office. So is it, what challenges does that pose? And is it really practical to conduct that business in the same way if you're all remote in the way that you are now? So I'd say, yeah, you can, you can answer this kind of factually and say, you know, do you have your Bloomberg? Do you have all your pricing fees? Do you have access to your algos? And is everything 100% secure? You could also add the human element of this, where if I'm a trader and I'm used to being on the floor of the Amex, which a lot of these ETF traders came off of and are now upstairs trading, it changes the dynamic of trading, right? So you're, you're used to sitting next to somebody who's an options trader and has, a, has the pulse of the options market while you're trading you know, an ETF. That's a great point. Yeah. You know, so you're, it, it, you need to evolve that and figure out how that's going to you know, keep that energy going and that momentum. So you know, what does that look like in the next six to 12 months? I don't know, but we continue to look to adapt that and you know, get people to feel comfortable and, and to feel challenged and to enjoy the environment that they're trading in. Well, there's that. And I imagine there's also the natural human element that uh, trading is a, can be a stressful job, obviously. And so if you're in an environment with other people where you can kind of, you know, either commiserate with, with, with them or share information or whatever, maybe it's uh, easier to cope with the stress than if you're stuck at home, um, kind of dealing with everything remote. I don't know, I'm speculating, but 
I would think that there's some value to being able to have face-to-face interaction with people. And I think uh, I'd like to actually touch upon ETFs now because Brian's mentioned, you know, obviously old mission uh, trade and ETFs, but Brian also had told us before the podcast something I was surprised about. It's the 30-year anniversary of ETFs. I didn't realize they were in the market how, uh, to the extent they've been here this long. Quick question, and then we can jump into it from your view, but I'm just curious. We noticed uh, that ETF as a market segment with this volatility has increased pretty dramatically. Is that something, you know, pretty much like everything, obviously, but like, is that something you guys have seen in your, in your world? If you look back at March and where the volume was up 40% in ETFs, on, on exchange, right? So us as a market maker are in there making two-sided quotes in, in ETFs that continue to, to with the volatility. Couple that with, you know, the, the growing demand of the fixed income ETFs, right? So they're definitely post-March seems to be a bigger appetite and a, bigger, a better understanding of how the fixed income ETFs or the bond ETFs kind of work within this marketplace. And we saw liquidity for these bond ETFs um, increase or be more liquid, if you will, than the than the bond market itself. So it was a it was a unique time, and I think what happens in events like March, people become more educated to see what happened, right? And it's in, and for lack of a better term, it's a test, right, for people to see what happens to these products. And ETFs continue to fare well. The bond market definitely had more people looking into it and understanding what happened, but I think the way it came out in a positive way. The extent to which you know this, so it's a genuine question, but uh, I know in like single stock U.S. equities, uh, we've seen a dramatic decline in displayed volume. And again, we saw an even more dramatic decline in displayed volume over this volatile period, but people would see a lot of volume hitting the tape. And then specifically when we talk to like institutional investors or sell side desks, they'd say, look, they couldn't even interact with it. It was like difficult. Was that the same in ETFs? And is that something that you guys at Old Mission have seen over time that the, the lack of displayed liquidity? Yeah, I mean, we talked about the ETFs, you know, the birthday of 30 years. It is a different product than a single stock. So by that nature, it does trade a little bit differently, right? It trades on, on screen the same way a single stock would trade. But the makeup of that ETF is very different. And so by that nature, you do have a bit more fragmentation when it comes to the liquidity of the ETFs. And so there is, a, there is an education there as it relates to displayed liquidity and available liquidity. You know, there are a lot of ETFs that doesn't show a lot of on-screen liquidity, but if you were to go and reach out to the issuer to try to find liquidity in that ETF, that ETF would trade in another way, right? And that other way are through dark, dark venues, or through another marketplace called RFQ or request for quote. And so that request for quote market, what that means is you send out a request to multiple market makers and multiple dealers and ask, you know, what would you pay for this large basket of securities, which is an ETF. Yeah. And so that gets printed off exchange. It's not on exchange, okay. but it's available to multiple people. So is that something that you guys would do? You would submit an RFQ or you would be receivers of an RFQ or both? Uh, I would be the receiver of that. Oh, okay. So an institution would send in an order through RFQ mechanism and that would go out to multiple brokers and those multiple brokers would respond for their best quote in that. 
and then that would become an order and you would uh, you would actually fill that so think of it as fill in a basket yeah you know or and with larger size right it's it's no different than a single stock if you want if you want to buy you know um, 100 million shares of IBM you're not always going to go to the displayed market to do that you're going right. to go yeah. to dark liquidity or you're going to go in the mid at IEX or however you're going to do that trade and maybe in some cases you can't really afford to go to a displayed market in order to do it. And I'm really interested to get your perspective, having worked at an exchange and now at a market maker, about the phenomenon that uh, Ronan mentioned, just the increasing pressure on and, and decline in displayed liquidity, the various factors that contribute to that. And obviously, people want to have options. You need to have a lot of options. But when you know, in some of these high volatility days, we've seen the off exchange market for for some symbols climb to way over fifty percent of the total volume, and then you wonder what that really does to the price discovery function, to the the, the transparency need for transparency in the market. Any thoughts you want to share about that? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. As an exchange operator, I was always looking for that displayed liquidity. It was all about price discovery. Coming to the market maker side of things, you know, we're still under those same requirements, right? In the sense of providing price improvement, providing best X. And so, you know, I live in that environment as well, but I have the ability to trade in different ways off exchange. And, you know, I'm still held to the NBBO or the national best bid and offer. I'm still um, held to competition where I'm competing against other brokers. I'm still looking to my customer to, to send me that order. And I think what I've seen in this new role is the customer or the institutions are very well prepared to send orders to multiple different venues, not just exchanges. So the tools that these institutions have today are, have, have, are very impressive in their ability to react to where that liquidity lives, yeah. right? And so, the choices by the institution where they're going to send that order. The market maker still is required to comply with best X and comply with the MBBO. But to your point, if that order doesn't make it to the exchange, are we losing price discovery? And I am still an advocate of on exchange liquidity competing in a, in a competitive environment for under the price time priority or however you want to put that model that's out there. I think the exchange displayed liquidity is still the best place to provide that type of pricing. Cool. And Brian, when you say institution, just for clarity, is an institution to you, those are other broker dealers connecting into Old Mission? Or do you have buy-side institutional firms that can connect directly to Old Mission? Yeah, so we, uh, we have buy-side institutions that connect into our broker dealer called Old Mission Markets. Okay, great. Interesting. Now, John Ramsey, I can see you're quivering and you want to ask Brian a question about delimit. Ding, 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 ding. He says he likes socks. displayed exchange. Yeah, give me some socks. Yeah, speaking of, so we have a strong conviction that one of the real drivers of the trend away from displayed liquidity is the fact that there are, there are firms and there are strategies that target displayed orders to pick them off, so-called pick-offs in circumstances where the price or price is moving against the party that's resting the order. And when they get picked off, they suffer significant losses, and that's a big, a big disincentive 
for some people to, to post liquidity, particularly institutional investors. So our delimit order proposal, I won't go into great detail about it, but is one way that's designed to provide some protection against those kinds of strategies and thereby give an incentive, more of an incentive to both market makers and institutional investors to, to give orders to exchanges. And, and I guess what I would say before you answer the question, Brian, it's, I mean, like all of these strategies are legal totally within the bounds of right. uh, reg, reg. However, adverse selection for display trading has unequivocally increased. And we came up with an idea to protect display trading. But obviously, as you know, coming from an exchange world, the sanctity of the protected quote and displayed quote being protected, it hasn't really afforded the exchanges much flexibility to really do anything in that realm, which is why most, and I think everyone agrees, most all innovation in the last 10 years has really occurred for dark non-displayed trading. And that's sort of what we're trying to seek approval from, for, sorry. Uh, we saw CBOE recently uh, got approval for a quote depletion uh, order type, which again can offer some protection for display trading, which we're, we were supportive of as well. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on uh, mm -hmm. delimit, good, bad, and different. And, and depending upon your answer, we'll give you a pair of socks. Yeah. So, yeah. Or we'll edit it out. Yeah. Well, I, I think... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Well, you know, consistent with the theme of innovation on both the institutional technology that they're using to trade, the exchanges continue to look to, to innovate on exchange. So providing functionality to their end user is another way to help out that end user when they're trading on exchange. And I think your point is very valid. You look in the dark pools and you look at the, the functionality that they have and they're using is is different than the exchanges have access to, right? So as those dark pools and exchanges looks very look more similar these days, I can see the advantages of a delimit order type for the end end user, right? So a firm like Old Mission as a market maker, we're out there taking risk and we're holding positions. So we're not looking to make that that spread capture, which a lot of people are doing, and kind of looking to to move the quote, if you will. So I can understand the value of a delimit to a user, especially when you're trying to compete against people who have spent tremendous amount of money in speed to look to read those data feeds and make a deterministic behavior on that. Yep. So I can see that value to the marketplace and the exchanges providing those type of order types. Well, it does make the market more complex, right? And there, and there may be unintended consequences there. I think it's a it's an interesting study as to how the impact in these markets and how it'll help out the end investor who isn't a market maker, right? And hasn't invested in the market making type technology where you can protect yourself there. But being able to use that on exchange could provide some value there. I think that's a very good answer. And I think you should not only get a pair of socks, but maybe a uh, yeah, Patagonia vest. Do you want an IEX Patagonia vest? <laughs> <laughs> that was an easy answer. It, yeah. it, well, go back to your old buddy's office wearing it. <laughs> anyway, so probably the most important question of the day is a question we pose to everybody. What's, what's your favorite movie? Uh, we say Wall Street movie, but it can be tangentially tied to Wall Street. But a uh, favorite yeah, Wall Street movie. Some of them are pretty tangen tangential. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, so in this in this COVID environment, I've spent a lot of time in front of the TV watching movies with my kids. And so one of the Wall Street movies that I just watched recently was The Pursuit of Happiness, right? So that nice. is a Wall Street movie. And it's the, it's the story of Chris Gardner and his rise into Wall Street and the hard work and the, and the dedication that he put into that. Uh, Will Smith and his son, Jaded Smith, and that's how I got my kids to see the movie is because uh, <laughs> someone cool was in it. Yeah, somebody cool was in it. They didn't know yeah. who Will Smith was. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great movie. And I would recommend it for people who haven't seen it recently. Um, it came out a while ago, but it is, it is a good movie. You should get a pair of socks for being the first person to come up with that movie. Because you, you, It's a really interesting answer. Now I want yeah. to see the movie. Uh, yeah, yeah it's me definitely... too. I haven't seen the movie, but I will actually watch it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I was able to play the old man dad and say that he was a customer of mine while I was at NASDAQ, working at NASDAQ and the exchange side of things. Oh, see? <laughs> nice. Well, John, I don't know if you have any other questions for Brian. I don't have but... any other questions. I'm played out at this point, but I think that Brian has been, I've always felt, Brian, like you were a, a stand-up guy, a really good, responsible uh, person in the industry. I'm so glad to see you're in this, this new role, and it's been really a pleasure Right. Yeah, and Brian, we, we, when we all get back to the offices, maybe we'll have you back as a return guest and bring on some other guests, maybe some buy side, some sell side, other yeah. exchange, however you want to do it. But uh, yeah, we, we'd love to have you back. We appreciate you at the time. And it's, it's, uh, it's good to hear the perspective of a market maker from a market maker's mouth. So thank you, Brian. Well, I appreciate that. And I think both as a market maker and this ETF space in general, there's a lot of interesting topics out there, both market structure and also education for everybody that's out there. So I appreciate you guys doing this podcast for the industry. And I, I have to mention that I don't think that Ronan has dropped the F-bomb once in this podcast. So I feel no. like you've had a calming effect on him. He has. Like he's he's calmed me down. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Maybe we should have Brian on more Definitely often, like used I should have you on every time, I think. I, I feel zen here. all right well thanks again brian we're gonna do over and out swig your beer god bless everyone thank you god bless you all (laughs) the information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only and iex group inc and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc., all rights reserved.